One of the amazing things about the universe is that we can simulate it because we know the laws of physics and we know the ingredients that go into making it up. If we add the right mix of dark energy, dark matter, normal matter, and photons, we can describe the entire evolution of the universe from the earliest moments of the hot big bang all the way up to the present day. At least that's how we think we can do it. That's our standard model. We call it Lambda CDM, and we use this in the context of general relativity. But that's not the only possibility out there, and we need to keep our minds open because the universe is going to be exactly as it is regardless of whether we figured it out right or not. How are we going to tell? Find out on this edition of the Starts With a Bang podcast. One of the greatest challenges of cosmology is to say, if I know the ingredients in the universe, the laws that govern the universe, and I can time evolve the universe with enough computational power, if I can start it off with some set of initial conditions and just apply the laws of physics, I should be able to derive and understand and predict all of the structures that should appear over the history of the universe. Can we do that? Well, we're trying, and then we're trying at the same time to go out and measure the universe and compare. And here to help us untangle this match of theory and variance to our theory with observations and what the universe actually has is Dr. Santiago Casas. Santiago got his PhD at the Institute for Theoretical Physics at Heidelberg, and after a postdoc at Paris-Saclay, he is now a postdoctoral research associate at the University of Aachen in Germany, and Santiago is both a member of the Euclid Collaboration, which will be one of the great large-scale structure-observing observatories, and also the Square Kilometer Array Science Working Group. Santiago, I'm so pleased to have you here, and welcome to the show. Thank you, Ethan, for the invitation. I'm really glad to be here. I've been following you for a while, and it's really nice to be here. Well, thank you. I'm I'm honored that, honestly, some of the things I'm saying can be useful even to professionals like yourself. And when I think about Lambda CDM, right, when I think about the standard cosmological model, um, I find it a little bit strange because I look at how successful it is. And I look at how remarkably successful it is over all of its alternatives in terms of how it forms structure in the universe and how it explains supernova observations and the cosmic microwave background and baryon acoustic oscillations and all of these features. And yet, if I read the popular press, if I read the latest news that comes out, it seems like what scientists are spending their time doing is unsuccessfully challenging this model and also making lots of noise about it. Um, that doesn't seem, though, to actually be reflective of what the majority of the field is doing. Um, can you sort of give me your take on it, on, on how successful is Lambda CDM? And as far as things like 
dark energy, weak lensing, galaxy clustering, and the large-scale structure of the universe, um, are there huge problems with it, or are the problems with it small compared to its successes? Yeah, those are really great questions. So, yeah, I think you're right uh, in saying that the press uh, usually exaggerates, uh, you know, every little article that comes, uh, you know, around or gets published on the archive. So, you know, if there is some uh, whatever modified gravity scenario or some quantum field theoretical, I don't know, idea, it just gets exaggerated and, and you know, it, it gets like, uh, advertise as prices and everything. Um, so I think uh, it, it is a very successful model. So Lambda CDM uh, established itself, I would say, first of all, because people like Vera Rubin, right? Like uh, she was uh, measuring galaxies, galaxy clusters, and she basically established that there should be dark matter out there. We, we see the, its gravitational effects. Uh, and then the question was, how much matter is there in total in the universe, right? If it's everything is made out of matter, like the whole energy density uh, of the universe is matter, or if the universe, uh, you know, it's open or closed or flat, right? And and I think that's where supernovae um, kicked in, like in 1998, and uh, you know, people uh, detected these two separate groups um, that the universe was actually expanding in an accelerated way. So that added the lambda component to the CDM cold dark matter part. And by combining this plus, you know, cosmic microwave background observations and a few other things, we established that the universe is flat, that all matter, including dark matter and variance, is just 30% of its energy density. And that there's like a 70% of unknown energy out there making the universe expand in an accelerated way and this is either a cosmological constant which is lambda or some other form of uh, let's say field or substance in the universe or maybe a modification of the equations of, of, of general relativity so i think um, that's you know in a short way uh, how the model got established and i think with very little you know input like you know a few few parameters, let's say six, seven parameters, you can predict many, many observations and they all roughly agree. Now we have some tensions, but maybe we'll talk about it later. Yeah. Yeah. But I think that's an excellent big picture overview. You know, I, uh, I started graduate school in 2001. So this was right after the initial discovery of dark energy. Um, and there were a lot of people challenging it, and I was actually one of the people when I learned about it. It actually took me a few years to convince myself that dark energy was real, um, because I, I, I sort of come at things from a theoretical point of view, and that has taught me uh, never trust one type of observation. If you have multiple lines of evidence that point to something, then you can start to trust it. So I started to look at, okay, if we 
somehow said we don't understand supernovae as well as we think we do because i can imagine all sorts of things that would that would change the brightness of distant supernovae even if type 1a supernovae have this universal light curve i can imagine that the environments they're in in evolve over time i can imagine that there's some new type of dust that permeates the universe that faintens ultra distant supernovae in a way that doesn't faint in the nearby ones. I can imagine that something happens where photons aren't inherently stable and they instead, over cosmic distances, oscillate into some yet undiscovered particle like an axion. So I can imagine ways around it and said, okay, well, if we ignore the supernova evidence, uh, what is the strong evidence for dark energy? And it turned out that by about 2004, 2005, partway through uh, my PhD in graduate school, you started to get measurements like baryon acoustic oscillations from large-scale structure formation. You started to see uh, things like the bullet cluster that gave a huge window into dark matter's non-baryonic nature. You started to see things like um, improvements in the CMB as the WMAP data came in and got better and better, where it became very clear, okay, if we fold in nucleosynthesis, this to me is one of the huge successes of cosmology in the 20th century, um, where we can say, okay, if I start with a hot, dense bath of subatomic particles, and I also have a bath of photons that they exist in, just dependent on how many baryons, which protons and neutrons combined are baryons, how many baryons there are and how many photons there are, I can predict what amount of the universe after the Big Bang will have been hydrogen, what amount would have been helium, what amount would have been deuterium and helium-3 and lithium-7. We can go out and make those observations, and that taught us that only 5% of the total amount of energy in the universe is in the form of normal matter. And it also taught us exactly how many photons there are left over from the Big Bang. The number is there are 411 photons per cubic centimeter of space right now everywhere in the universe. You take those pieces of information together, you not only need dark matter, you need there to be some other component of the universe that doesn't clump, that doesn't cluster, that permeates all of space equally, and that behaves very, very, very indistinguishably from a cosmological constant. And for me, even though there are some minor points of tension, that overall picture really hasn't changed over the last 20 years. It's still by far the best, most successful description we have of the universe. Yeah, I totally agree. So, um, yeah, I think the, the, the fact that we can really very precisely predict the cosmic microwave background that we see everywhere, like if we point, you know, a microwave detector or telescope into the sky, um, we see, you know, this uh, light coming from all directions, which is very homogeneous. But then if you look at uh, perturbations on that light of 10 to the minus five, so 100,000 times smaller than, than the signal, which is really, really tiny, uh, we can actually predict 
those those really tiny anisotropies, right? And um, and that's all really a, a very big success of you know particle physics, cosmology. So you know the, the whole you know field of physics I think is involved in there. You know, like from nuclear physics, there is quantum field theory, there is um, uh, general relativity. So I think it's a, it's a big success. Yeah, that that part. However, we know you know like there is this tension uh, from of the determination of the Hubble parameter, right? Like the the value of of the Hubble parameter today is called H naught. So if you take this CMB uh, and you put in your model, right, lambda CDM, uh, you get some values of your parameters. One of them is H naught, and that number. Well, it doesn't mean anything back then at times of recombination, but that number today means how fast galaxies are, you know, driving away from us. And that number doesn't match. They get 67 kilometers per second per megaparsec. And that number doesn't match what other people, other groups get with local universe measurements like supernovae and so on. So, yeah, I think that's really a point now where we are actually looking for something else that we don't understand. Yeah, I mean, this is, uh, there are a few observations that I I look at and I say, you know, that's funny. I wonder what the explanation for that is. Um, For a long time, we've had these multiple different ways to measure how the universe is expanding. Uh, And they fall into two different classes of method all the time. One of them is what I call the the distance ladder method. And that's where you say, okay, I'm going to start here at the sun and I'm going to look out at the universe and I'm going to see how far away stars are. Stars that I can measure accurately. Stars whose properties I can come to understand precisely well. And stars that are close enough that I can simply parallax measure how far they are apart, which is to basically say, okay, I'm going to observe them when the Earth's over here, and then six months later when the Earth has moved another 300 million kilometers through space because it's on the other side of the sun, I'm going to measure that star again, and I'm going to see, I'm going to detect that tiny shift, that tiny shift it made over this small, small baseline. It's the same thing you do when you hold your thumb out at arm's length and you close your left eye and then you close your right eye and you switch eyes and you watch your thumb shift relative to the background. We're just doing that instead of with our two eyes, we're doing that with planet Earth. And instead of our thumb, we're using a nearby star against the backdrop of even further objects. So we can see those stars shift that tiny, tiny amount. And that tells us how far away they are just based on geometry. Then you say, okay, I understand these stars. I'm going to look for these stars that I understand in objects that are much farther away, like different galaxies. And that tells you how far away those galaxies are. And then what you're going to do is you're going to say, well, I know some properties about this galaxy, like how far away it is. And also I can measure how its brightness fluctuates or how it rotates or how its velocity is dispersed or if there's a special type of supernova that goes off in it. And then, because I know the properties of these of this galaxy or the objects within the galaxy, and now I understand how these objects that I'm observing in it work, 
I can observe those same objects in more and more and more distant galaxies. And so I just build out like rungs on a ladder. I attach each rung to the previous rung from parallax to stars to galaxies to ultra distant galaxies or objects within those galaxies. Now I can see all of this stuff out to the great reaches of the universe. And as you said, when I measure the expansion rate of the universe using that method, I get something like 73 or 74 kilometers per second per megaparsec. And yet when I do it the other way, when I say, oh, well, what if I look at an early relic? What if I look at something that was imprinted on the universe long ago, like the fluctuations in the cosmic microwave background, fluctuations that are so small, as you said, when you say 10 to the minus 5, I think, okay, that's like looking at two houses that are identical, except one house is one human hair's width wider than the other and you have to tell them apart well your eyes are lousy tools for doing that but the satellites we've been putting up like kobe and wmap and planck they're capable of doing that for the background temperature of the universe they're capable of this differential imaging between different points on the sky and when you do that or you look at the temperature fluctuations and how they evolve, or you look at the uh, imprint of what we call baryon acoustic oscillations. These are basically how these wiggles and imperfections in the large-scale structure of the universe grow as the universe expands and evolves we find a completely different value for the Hubble constant, one that's about 9% lower, one that's only about 67 kilometers per second per megaparsecs. And the uncertainties on each of these methods are so small, they're down to like 1%, maybe a, a little less than 2% on each method, that how could the values differ by 9%? This is... Uh, what some people are calling a crisis, I, I think of it more as a conundrum. Why would one class of methods give you a significantly different answer from this other fundamental class of methods? Um, I don't think that's something we have a good understanding of, but I think we can say with pretty certain, you know, with a pretty strong degree of certainty that it's not because, oh, one group just doesn't understand what they're observing. I think it's been very well established that the groups observing these understand what they're observing well enough that something weird is going on. It's not like someone made a simple mistake somewhere along the line. Yeah, I totally agree. So on the CMB side, there is like, uh, of course, um, a lot of you know, critic criticism because uh, you know, Planck, uh, for example, is a, was like is or was a huge collaboration, and as you said, right, like measuring this uh, ten to the minus five variation on top of something is a very, very, very complicated problem, and you you have to remove all the foregrounds. It's not like you have actually as I said before, like this very nice uh, homogeneous microwave background, you actually have all the light from the Milky Way, uh, you know, synchrotron emission, everything that is on the foreground, even, you know, galaxy clusters that are nearby, you know, you have to remove lots of things. And there are like many techniques for that. And then, you know, some people do not trust 
this from outside of the collaboration because they cannot see the codes, right? Some of the codes are not open. Um, so, but, you know, they have been doing this not only with Plank, but also, first of all, WMAP, uh, before that, the American um, collaboration measured also a similar value before. And also SPT, which is the South Pole Telescope, and the Akatama uh, Telescope, ACT, they have measured small patches of, of the CMB sky, and they have also recovered more or less the same. So on that side, I think it's also established that there isn't like a huge problem. There could be tiny mistakes, but there's not like something that someone for just forgot, right? And then on the other side with the distance ladder that you explained really nicely, um, yes, it's, it's also complicated. There is like a lot of um, things uh, starting from, you know, the fact that supernovae are complicated, there could be color issues, there could be, uh, you know, lots of things happening, environment, uh, the gas, the baryonic structures, if, if the supernovae is in a galaxy which is in a filament or not, you know, lots of things, right? And also the local universe is pretty complicated, right? Like there's like, not you know, galaxies in the local universe do not only expand uh, and go, you know, with the Hubble flow, right? They actually move into these great attractors and into these super clusters and stuff like that. So uh, measuring their peculiar velocities is super hard. Um, and apart from, yeah, so I, I think, you know, there's always people complaining uh, from both sides that, you know, oh, we don't understand Cephates or whatever. But I think there are a few years of these discussions. I think it's now clear that it cannot be really something so simple on the observational side that uh, really they have measured things well. They have independently, other people have, you know, access the data and also recover the same things. And there are a few other things that we can comment on, right? Like this strong lensing people and yeah. So I think that yeah, we have to look for another explanation. And I think it's there's a lot of interesting things that could be happening. No, and let's talk about some of that because in my experience, and I bet you this mirrors your experience too, uh, scientists are some of the most difficult people to convince to believe in something uh, or to accept something because we are so inherently skeptical. We try and discredit and knock down uh, anything that comes our way. Oh, you had an idea? Well, try and destroy it. Try and use the evidence we have to destroy it. I remember talking to someone and I was telling them about uh, Big Bang nucleosynthesis, just like we talked about a little bit earlier, uh, and the abundance of the light elements. And this is about 15 years ago, and he just stopped me mid-sentence and said, all of nucleosynthesis is crap. You can't trust anything from it at all, and you're a fool if you believe any of it. And instead of pushing back and arguing with him that nucleosynthesis was actually a robust field of science for many decades now, and you can look at... Instead, I, was, I just went with it, and I said, okay, let's assume that piece of evidence we can just ignore and throw out. What are the other pieces of evidence we have? Because this is where, for me, you start to build up a really strong case for something, is you start looking at all of these independent line of evidence. And, and they come on both the theoretical and the observational side, right? On the observational side, you say, oh, well, I could measure if the universe is full of dark matter, I could measure 
what happens when individual galaxies rotate, or what happens when pairs of galaxies interact in the vastness of space, or what happens when galaxies group together and they start moving within those galactic groups, and what happens when galaxies form a galaxy cluster and those clusters have galaxies moving inside them, or what happens when two galaxy clusters collide with each other, and what happens in various stages of the collisions. And so you can start saying, from a theoretical point of view, okay, if Lambda CDM is correct, if we have this model of the universe, how well does it predict what we should see for all of these effects, from weak and strong lensing, to individual galaxies, to collections of galaxies, to the large-scale cosmic web, to the cosmic microwave background. And then observationally, we can also go out and measure all of these things, and we can say, how well does what we observe match up with what we predict or what we simulate? And for me, the fact that we have so many independent lines of evidence that agree so well with a very simple model that we have general relativity with no modifications to gravity, with dark energy and dark matter that is cold and collisionless, uh, that works really, really well at almost all scales. There are some tension points. There are some points where, okay, things don't work as well as we'd like them to, but the things that do work are overwhelming. I think at this point we can be very, very confident that either dark matter and dark energy exist or something that is hitherto indistinguishable from dark matter or dark energy, like a field that mimics a cosmological constant at all of the times we've been able to critically observe it, or a fluid that behaves like cold particle dark matter, or a, um, you know, a modification to gravity that behaves just like a cold collisionless particle dark matter would behave, except in field terms. Something like that has to exist in order to explain this giant suite of observations we have. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I think uh, that's pretty much established now. There has to be something like that. I mean, there's, of course, many topics that we can open up here. But uh, yeah, going back into the tension problem, right? Like, apart from all the observations, as you say, like, that, that's why we call it concordance cosmology, right? Because when you plot the you know, probability contours of these different observations, CMB, supernovae, Big Bang nucleosynthesis itself, large-scale structure, like variant acoustic oscillations, etc., etc., and they all, you know, match very well in this uh, framework of, of Lambda-CDM. Um, but, but yeah, I think one, like, up to now, up to, let's say, I don't know, five years ago, you could say, okay, we just need more data because we are not really sure that the universe expands, like, with a cosmological constant because we have to measure the equation of state. Of, of the dark energy, right? Uh, and that's one of the you know main uh, goals of Euclid, right? Uh, to to measure the equation of state of dark energy, and the error bars on that, the equation of state of dark energy, uh, has to be minus one, right? To be a cosmological constant, and the error bars right now are of the order of 
you know, 10% if you combine all observations that we have so far. And there are still, of course, models that predict small variations to minus one around a few percent. So that's, that's one of the main goals of Euclid. But that was like something, okay, you know, we just have to measure, we just have to get more data and we will rule out alternatives, right? Now, the problem with H0, with the Hubble uh, constant, is that, you know, within, within Lambda CDM, we have a problem now of five sigma, as you said, right? Like error bars are of the order of 1% or 2% and the discrepancy is of 10%. So <clears throat> it's about, let's say, five sigma. And so, yeah, we, we have to now explore some alternatives. For example, uh, early dark energy, let's say. So if there is a field mimicking um, a cosmological constant at late times, maybe that field was also active at very early times. But then you have to be careful, right? As you say, right, you have to be skeptical because then if you modify something, you have to make sure that you don't ruin the other observations, right? So if you add some field at recombination, you will mess up the CMB and the error bars on the CMB, uh, you know, power spectrum are really, really tiny, right? So, um, and then of course, if you add this field that even earlier times you have problems uh, with BBN, or then you start, you know, getting very close to inflation and then you have another bunch of problems. Um, so that's, you have to be very careful at, uh, you know, proposing new things. And it's very hard, I think, right now to do uh, cosmology because there are so many observations and every time you try to do something like, like I can, I don't know, whatever, I have an idea of, for example, I worked on, and during my PhD, I worked on coupled quintessence, right? So it's like a scalar field that mimics the cosmological constant, but also is felt by dark matter, right? So dark matter has an extra force uh, that only dark matter feels because you can just make up these equations, right? Like you can just say, okay, there is this extra field uh, expands the universe, but also it behaves like an extra force on top of gravity for dark matter only, right? But then you have to check, does it match the CMB? Do you get the correct structure formations? Do you get the correct halo masses? You have to run n-body simulations. You have to, you know, it's a bunch of things you have to do. So it takes years and years to, to actually, if you propose a model as a theoretician, it takes years, many students and postdocs and lots of code to actually say, okay, I am sure that this model does not contradict anything I have so far. That's a really tall order because one of the huge things we have, like you said, is we have on all of these different scales some pristine observations. And then you have something like, okay, um, like you said, if I look at the how the universe is expanding, if I start at early times, I get one value. If I start today and look backwards, I get a different value. What could be going on? Well, that's one problem to solve. And one of the simple approaches that we take in theoretical physics is we say, okay, I'm going to make one new parameter come into play and it's going to affect my equations or my fields or something 
in a certain way. And if I introduce one new parameter, can I solve this one new problem without messing anything else up? And if you can do that, then you start to say what you said and go, okay, uh, now can I check that everything else isn't messed up? Can I see if there are any new predictions and can I see what else it might predict that I could go out and look for and test for? That's a really tall order because cosmology is quickly approaching the point that particle physics has gotten to with the standard model where things are so tightly constrained that any modification you make on one scale can easily screw up something on a different scale. So for example, um, I went through this in the early days, right, where when I was starting as a grad student and they had evidence for dark energy, what we talk about, what you've been saying about the equation of state is a relationship between the pressure that an energy-containing species exerts and the energy density of that species. So, for example, for normal matter and dark matter, these things have almost no pressure at all. Um, especially if their kinetic energy is low, you can effectively say they have zero pressure. So their equation of state, what we call the variable W, is zero, because regardless of what the energy density is, there's no pressure. Photons, on the other hand, have a positive pressure, right? If you take a system full of photons, there's going to be radiation pressure. And so W, that equation of state that relates the energy density to the pressure, is positive. It's positive one-third. And theoretically, most of the things you can invent that are simple go in increments of one-third. If you have something like cosmic strings or an inherent curvature to space that has a W, an equation of state of minus a third. If you have something like domain walls, which would be these walls separating one region of space from another, um, that would have an equation of state of minus two-thirds. If you have three-dimensional topological defects known as textures, or if you have a cosmological constant, that has an equation of state of minus one. And there are other things you can introduce that have minus four-thirds, minus five-thirds, etc. They tend to go in increments of a third. I was very excited when we reached the point where we could say, okay, whatever dark energy is, it looks like it's W of minus one, and it looks like it's not minus two-thirds, and it's not minus four-thirds. It was very difficult for me to get excited about, okay, now that we know it's minus one and not minus two-thirds and not minus four-thirds, let's beat this down. Let's get it down to 10%, to 8%, to 7%. The ultimate goal with Euclid and the Vera Rubin Observatory and W-first I'm um, sorry, now the Nancy Roman telescope is for these three observatories combined to get things down to just one or two percent uncertainty. I think it would be remarkable if it could do that, but like you said, if you want to do something like say, well, maybe there's this extra form of dark energy that appears early on and decays away, 
That's adding an extra parameter, but that's also having to avoid all of these constraints that already exist. I can't mess up the CMB. I can't mess up large-scale structure. I can't mess up early galaxy formation. I can't mess up the abundance of the light elements. I can't uh, do something where if this early dark energy, this early form of energy is important, and then it decays away, depending on what it decays into, we can have this problem where we say it overcloses the universe, where it causes the universe to recollapse, which would be bad. It clearly didn't do that. So I think that there are a lot of attempts right now to say, oh, what am I going to do? I'm going to add an extra parameter to explain this one observation without messing anything up. And I think that's the big reason people are talking right now about early dark energy is because you can actually do that. You could fix this problem, fix this tension without destroying the rest of the universe, but you have to be very careful about how you do it. And also we don't have those intermediate observations from a redshift of about 10 to a redshift of about a thousand, that's uh, those are a few critical hundred million years of observations that are missing. That there would need to be some change in how dark energy behaves on those scales. Yeah, totally. That that's one one of the options, right? Um, and as you say, there's these dark ages that that we call right from redshift of about thousand to redshift of about ten, where reionization kicks in. Um, so that means stars, you know, get formed and they reionize the neutral hydrogen that was the universe back then. Um, and, and that's one of the things that, that we're also trying to look at with SKA, right? Like, uh, which is the SKA observatory. Uh, it used to be called square kilometer array. Now it's just SKAO. Um, and it's a basically a set of, of radio telescopes in Australia, Af South Africa, and so on, um, which are very, very, very advanced. Uh, you know, they're just building up the first precursors like Meerkat and um, Hera and others. And you know, I think by the year 2030, probably or maybe earlier, we will have the phase one complete, and this will allow us to look back, uh, you know, up to redshifts of about, yeah, let's say 10. And, and we can also do cosmology with it. It's not, a, it's not a cosmology observatory. It's a general observatory for many things, uh, you know, from exoplanets to, to star formation. Um, but it will, if we use it for cosmology, we can actually maybe look at this, you know, high redshift, um, parts of the universe and see if there was a change in dark energy back then. So I think, yeah, that's also a very interesting uh, thing. And we're trying to combine this now with, uh, you know, doing forecasts at the moment, right? Trying to combine radio observations with optical observations and see how much it would help to constrain those theories of uh, dark energy. No, and this is hugely important because there are all sorts of signals that we know are out there in the universe, that we know if we can build the right observatory, we will be able to detect it. For example, we know that 
we formed neutral atoms about 380,000 years after the Big Bang. And yeah, there's a plus or minus 100,000 years or so because it's a gradual slow process that occurs. But once you form those neutral atoms, we know that by mass, 75% of the atoms in the universe are hydrogen. By number, 92% of the atoms that form at the time of the CMB are hydrogen atoms. And we know that a full 50% of all of those hydrogen atoms, just from a random chance, are going to have the spin of their electron and their proton anti-aligned with one another, and 50% will have their spins aligned with one another. And this is remarkable because when you get an aligned hydrogen atom where the electron and the proton have their spin angular momentum, their intrinsic angular momentum oriented in the same way, they have a half-life. They will undergo a quantum transition where they flip their spins with a half-life of about 9 or 10 or 11 million years, and they will emit a very specific photon of an exactly known wavelength that's about 21 centimeters long. And then that light will redshift as the universe expands. If we can observe that light, if we can observe that 21 centimeter light from all of the hydrogen atoms in the universe spin flipping, or from half of the hydrogen atoms in the universe spin flipping during the first few tens of millions of years of cosmic history, that could teach us how the universe expands at a time where we've never been able to measure anything meaningful about the universe yet. Um, and so this is a way that we could potentially fill in the gaps. What you're be talking about when you're talking about something like SKA or SKAO now, um, that is looking at a different part of the spectrum. It's looking at the radio part of the spectrum but not with the sensitivity to see that early radio light. At the same time, Euclid, another uh, mission that you're working on, is going to fill in some of the gaps in large-scale structure. It's going to be able to identify large-scale, well-formed, complex structures from earlier in the universe and on larger cosmic scales than any other observatory to date has been able to do. I kind of wonder, as we push these frontiers, what are some of the things that you would be looking for that you recognize are possible in the universe that could maybe be that critical hint we need to solve these cosmic conundrums? Yeah, so you mean apart from uh, radio and optical? Uh, yeah, I think there's like a lot of interesting things. First of all, um, gravitational waves. I'm sure you have covered this uh, lots, lots of times in your, in your podcast and in your articles. So there is this gravitational wave uh, background also, right? Like there are, uh, you know, collisions of black holes happening all the time and neutron stars with black holes and all that. And, and they, uh, you know, they also have to travel through the large-scale structure. They also, in principle, should get lensed. In principle, should correlate with the structures of the universe. And there's also the, you know, primordial gravitational waves generated at the Big Bang. And they also have to travel 
in the same way as light travels to us, they have to travel through the universe. And, you know, they basically do not interact, right? Like meaning in a meaningful way with anything. They're just traveling. But, you know, if you look again, if you try to, if we manage to get this, the, the technology to detect the anisotropies of that gravitational wave background, we will learn a lot about the, the very early universe, right? And I don't, I, we don't have yet the, the technology for that. There is, of course, some proposals like the Einstein telescope. And yeah, that, that's one, one side. I think that's, that's really important. Um, I, I would say that's more related in a way uh, to the very early universe to inflation and what happened there, uh, which is another <laughs> conundrum, as you call it, is another unsolved problem. And then for, uh, you know, for other things, I think, uh, for example, neutrinos are very interesting. Um, neutrinos decoupled, you know, they were all relativistic particles. They're supposed to be massless in the standard model of particle physics, but we have detected here on Earth that they're massive, right? That they have some mass because they oscillate between the three different species, right? So we know they have to have a mass and there are some up you know, upper bounds on what the, their mass can be. And they were also produced in the Big Bang and they decoupled from this hot plasma uh, around the time where the universe had like a one mega electron volt of temperature. And they also traveled through the universe. They also modify structural formation. They suppress the power spectrum. They, uh, depending on their mass, they can have like, you know, actually large effects on clustering so uh well with euclid we will see their indirect effects right we will see if neutrinos have a mass uh they will affect the power spectrum of, of uh let's say dark matter uh, perturbations and we will actually be able to measure we have done the calculations and we know we can measure the the total mass of neutrinos with euclid but <clears throat> i think if we ever build a neutrino detector in the same way that we have microwave detectors, I think that would be really, really cool um, because we would see things that are completely invisible to us right now and that happened before recombination. So um, that would be really nice to have some kind of like camera of neutrinos, right? I mean, that's that's an amazing possibility because you're right, there, there should be this cosmic neutrino background and there should be a background of cosmic neutrinos that's almost as abundant as the photon background, right? There should be something like 90 of each neutrino species, and there are three of them uh, for each cubic centimeter of space. Except because we know these neutrinos have mass, at some point they slow down enough traveling through the expanding universe that their kinetic energy becomes less than their rest mass. And when that starts to happen, they should actually begin falling into galactic halos and becoming gravitationally bound. So whereas the photons we see from the CMB, or if we could ever see them, the gravitational waves that we see left over from inflation and the Big Bang, um, those should move free streaming in a fashion at the speed of light to us and when they pass through us or when they interact with us uh we should see them as they were generated simply affected by the expanding universe and the gravitational effects of everything they pass through but for neutrinos it's a little different neutrinos 
because they behave as hot dark matter, which can't be most of the dark matter, that means they fall into these galaxies and these gravitationally bound structures that have already formed at late times, uh, in the past few billion years in the universe, not when it was just a few million years old. Um, and so the background that we see, if we could ever detect these low-energy neutrinos, I would wonder, okay, we are going to be getting some information from the very early stages of the universe, but it's also going to be scrambled. It's going to be scrambled by billions of years of gravitational interactions that have caused the neutrinos to not be the original moving close to the speed of light signal from which they were generated, they're going to be all scrambled by the gravitational effects of our galaxy and local group. Yeah, yeah, totally agree. I mean, there could be, for example, one family of neutrinos, let's say, I don't know, the electron neutrino, which is massless, we still don't know, right? And then two of them massive. So yeah, it, it could be actually quite interesting if we, in the future, I, I would say far future, uh, we could actually be able to, you know, detect the different types of neutrinos and then if we by then know their masses as you say uh we could you know unscramble that that information and and i think there is a lot of pro, you know uh futuristic but a lot of uh things we could do there no and i i honestly love how careful you were just being right there to remind all of our listeners hey ethan if you're going to get into these weeds you should remember that we know that there are three mass eigenstates. There are three mass eigenstates for the neutrino, and all three of them mix together to produce what we observe as the electron neutrino, the muon neutrino, and the tau neutrino. And while we can measure the mass squared differences between the different eigenstates, that doesn't necessarily mean that all three of our species of neutrinos have a non-zero rest mass. It's still possible for one of them to be massless um, and for the other two to be massive. So that is a thing that while I think the general expectation is that all three species will be massive and we don't know what the mass hierarchy is, uh, it's important at this stage in the game to keep our minds open to all of the possibilities that are still allowable by observation, even if we have some theoretical reasons for disfavoring them. Yeah, and there's also the, the possibility of a sterile neutrino, right? Right, that you can have a fourth species of neutrino, or more than four, that isn't necessarily part of the standard model, but that can couple to the other three known species of neutrino. Exactly. There are some tensions which I could not explain right now on the, you know, baseline detectors, like, you know, these, these experiments where they have like a nuclear reactor somewhere and, uh, and then they send the neutrinos through a big, you know, pipe through a tunnel and they, you know, put some detectors like kilometers away to actually measure these oscillations. And it seems that there are some tensions between uh, the expected, you know, results and of the theoretical expectations and the observational results. There's going to be a very interesting um, experiment in Fermilab or near Fermilab called Dune. I don't know if you've heard about it. Yeah, I've written about it. I'm very excited about Dune because Dune is... Uh... 
you know, when you talk about these different experiments, some of them have been beamline experiments, like the LSND experiment at Los Alamos and Mini Boon, uh, which took place at Fermilab, um, and then Microboon, which was the add-on to that. Uh, and like you said, there have been reactor neutrino experiments like Camland that have sort of seen, hey, um, if we take all of this data combined and we combine it with the atmospheric neutrino data and the solar neutrino data from these neutrino observatories, um, they're not all consistent with each other with just the three standard model species of neutrinos. And I think there are a lot of questions that this new experiment, Dune, which is going to take neutrinos generated in the particle accelerator at Fermilab, they're going to collide them with the Earth, because that's how you make a neutrino beam, is you just shoot a beam of particles at the Earth, and the Earth absorbs everything except the neutrinos, and then the neutrinos make it about a thousand kilometers away to a mine in South Dakota that they shoot them at, and then you see okay, I'm building a near detector on the Fermilab side and I'm building a far detector on the South Dakota side and we're going to see what types of neutrinos arrive at the near detector and arrive at the far detector and how have they changed? How have they changed from one species into another? And what does that tell us about how many types of neutrinos there are and how do they oscillate? Yeah, yeah, that's actually pretty cool. Yeah, so I think, um, yeah, there is like talking now about these four species. Um, I think also uh, there's a big question of dark matter, right? I think we haven't covered this yet. So um, it turns out like, you know, sterile neutrinos could, could be an, you know, possible candidate for dark matter, but then it doesn't really work, right? Like uh, you just do not get into details, right? Because apparently the sterile neutrino that you would need to solve those tensions that you just mentioned does not is not compatible with with the you know a dark matter candidate, right? In in terms of cosmology and large large scale structure, so I think um, dark matter is in a in a dark matter research is in a very bad position. I would say, like for my personal opinion, because it ha they have been trying to measure this for thirty or maybe forty years already, you know, with direct detection, indirect detection. And and they haven't found anything, right? Like uh, so, and I think uh, most probably um, this would be maybe my guess, rather than a, you know early form of dark energy or something like that. I think this H naught tension should be maybe related to dark matter not being completely collisionless and and cold, and so maybe some self -inter interacting uh, dark matter model, uh, maybe a mixture of of that with primordial black holes, uh, you know, they're like endless possibilities, right? And as, as you said before, uh, some, some time ago, like once you open up this parameter space, it gets very complicated, right? Like I can introduce more species, but then I have to do again, the calculations, I have more parameters, I have uh, more observations that I can mess up. But I think uh, in my opinion, dark matter is not as simple as we think it is, even if simulations and you know, in general, large structure works very well. I think the nonlinear part, uh, the small scale part of, of large scale structure is still not very well established. And I think um, also Euclid is going to be able to, to, to give us some hints about that, right? Like we still have very big error bars in the power spectrum 
you know, the fluctuations of this uh, uh, density of dark matter at small scales, right? Of, of about, I don't know, one inverse megaparsec onwards. Um, you know, actual present data does not really constrain anything over there. So you could really have something else going on uh, that we haven't seen. No, and this is really important. Um, so let's get into the weeds a little bit here, because like like we both know, on large cosmic scales, on the scales of galaxy groups, galaxy clusters, the cosmic web, on all of these large scales, the standard cosmological model is impeccable, in, except for that Hubble tension problem. Uh, there were really no problems with it standard cold collisionless dark matter and dark energy plus the normal matter we know explains everything we observe but then like you say we get down to these small scales what we call highly nonlinear scales um and the reason we call them that is it's just like we have like imagine you have a small imperfection in the early universe this small overdense region What's going to happen over time, that small overdense region is going to draw in more of the surrounding matter from the average density and the low density regions than the other regions around it. Initially, that fluctuation is going to be small compared to the average density, right? We talked about few parts in 100,000, like the width of a human hair compared to the size of a house. Then you give it time and it grows and it grows to twice its original size and it grows to 10 times its original size or a hundred or a thousand. Well, if you were starting at a few parts in a hundred thousand, you're still in the linear regime, which means the imperfection is still small compared to the average. But once the imperfection gets large compared to the average, it becomes about... 60%, 100%, 200% of the average, now we're talking about, okay, we're leaving the linear regime. We're leaving the place where the equations are simple. And now we have to do the complicated thing. We have to start either doing a massive Taylor expansion, or we have to start going into n-body simulations, or we have to have some sort of full nonlinear theory to handle now these fluctuations are getting large and objects are falling in and they're becoming gravitationally bound. And instead of having a particle just get attracted into this region, we have a particle falling into this region and it's going to orbit it hundreds or thousands or tens of thousands of times. This gets messy. This gets chaotic. And these are the scales where dark matter theory and simulations, at least with the simplest assumptions, actually performs relatively poorly. And so this makes sense as the place to look. But at the same time, you still have all of these constraints you have to evade. You can't let dark matter interact with itself too much, or you would mess up large-scale and small-scale structure. And if dark matter can self-annihilate, you would get too big of a signal from the centers of galaxies. Uh, dark matter also can't interact too much with normal matter. It can't have too big of a cross-section, or the direct detection experiments that, we, that we've built would have seen something by now. 
So this is, I think, a very interesting sandbox to play in because you can sort of say, okay, I'm going to try this model of dark matter. I'm going to try some self-interacting dark matter. I'm going to try some strongly interacting dark matter. I'm going to try to make dark matter that obeys uh, some sort of volume exclusion rule where once it gets too dense there's a limit to it uh, I can try fuzzy dark matter I can try right you can make all of these modifications to dark matter where you say it's something other than cold and collisionless with no interaction cross-section with either itself or normal matter um, and still I have to say that I'm not convinced that we've worked out the cold and collisionless dark matter theory on small nonlinear scales correctly, because just in the last five years, there's been some excellent research from people like Justin Reed about dynamical dark matter heating, especially in the most baryon-rich, in the most normal matter-rich regions of these galaxies, that... You get matter there, it moves around, it heats up, it emits radiation, um, and that dynamical motion can actually push some of that dark matter out of the central core of the galaxy, and um, just from those gravitational interactions, it can cause the dark matter to effectively heat up, and I'm not convinced that all of those details have been successfully worked out, but you might be able to change my mind. Actually, yeah, this, this last thing you mentioned is, is really, really nice. I have heard about it, but I haven't uh, looked uh, closely into it. And, you know, in, for example, in Euclid, all this that you just mentioned, we call it baryonic, uh, you know, we call it baryonic physics, right? Since we are like dark matter, dark energy people, we do not really care too much about what happens with gas, with baryons in these high density regions. Uh, it's not that we don't care. It's not just it's just we don't have like the expertise to really look into that. So we actually have people helping us, or well, people in the collaboration, trying to look into into how this affects uh, the dark matter perturbations, and and the, well, there are good and bad news, right? Like we have implemented some of the models, um, and as you said, I think we are really far from understanding them because uh, you know. There are so many different models calibrated with simulations because the problem here is that there is no fundamental theory that you can just calculate um, analytically. You have to do simulations. Uh, it's a very complicated process. And then every simulation or every group that has a different simulation has a different baryonification model and they have different parameters and they don't recover the same physics like uh, if we put it in into our pipeline right like we have tried that and um and so the good news is that there is a lot of work going on there there are some people trying to do some modeling uh the bad news is that when we put it into the analysis it messes up things right like it actually as you said can modify the dark matter perturbation at halo scales, for example, and Euclid is supposed to measure the power spectrum, you know, up to small scales of around the, you know, halo sizes. Um, so we, if we had only dark matter in the universe, it would be very easy, right? We would have actually everything that we know is just gravity. Um, 
and we could you know compute the power spectrum measure it and and it has a lot of information right because it's you know there's a lot of nonlinear modes but this baryonification this baryonic problem is actually quite uh quite hard um because so far as you said for large scales for cosmic web scales lambda cdm has worked out pretty well we have codes uh, that can compute everything and it matches very well the observations but now if we want to use those nonlinear scales to extract information about cosmology then we hit this barrier and um, and we don't know what exactly we have to do if we we can for, for example increase the number of parameters let's say we have a baryonification model that is 10 parameters right it contains things related to agn supernova feedback whatever you know like lots of th stuff and um, we can increase our model our cosmological model by 10 parameters but then when you do a markov chain monte carlo uh sampling this will just increase your error contours right so if we want to have like a one percent determination of the equation of state it gets just ruined because we have to include 10 more parameters from baryonic physics so we are really in this problem right now and it's actually um yeah a, i would say a very hard problem but i i actually love this problem like what you described is the reason i got into cosmology you you, you mentioned this earlier that when it comes to the universe if you want to understand what's happening on all of these different cosmic scales you need to pull from all of these different fields of physics because you need to understand nuclear physics to understand how the light elements form and you need to understand plasma physics because you need to understand how baryons and electrons and photons and neutrinos interact at various times in the early universe and you need to understand neutrino physics because you need to understand how neutrinos play a role on cosmic scales and this means that cosmologists care what the result of the dune experiment are going to be even though that's a particle physics experiment and then you have to understand all of these aspects of baryonic physics and star formation and stellar feedback and heating and all of these astronomy and astrophysical relations and you need to synthesize them all together in the context of general relativity where some species of matter that are there we know how they behave and some species of energy like dark matter and dark energy have all of these unknowns associated with them and you have to take all of these disparate ingredients that require all of these different levels of expertise in these widely varying fields of physics and astronomy and you need to synthesize them all together and only then can you understand what you're looking at and like you said every time you want to go down to higher precision higher accuracy there are more and more and more details that were unimportant when you looked at the universe coarsely that when you want to look at the universe in fine detail you have to understand to make valid predictions um it's a tall order but the rewards are understanding how the universe works yeah indeed i think i was also drawn into cosmology by, by exactly this you know i liked uh, many fields in 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 physics, you know, I started with particle physics in the sense that, you know, I actually did some 
internship at a small synchrotron and stuff like that and uh and then i also liked astronomy itself right um so i think cosmology you know unifies all this um it's complicated um and it's hard it's actually you know working as a cosmologist uh you know day by day it's it's hard it's uh, lots of stuff and of course you know there's not a single person that knows everything um and but you have to really uh, you know be uh, constantly learning new things and um and yeah and and everything takes a lot of time like every single modification that you do to something as we said many times already can mess up the whole you know structure of knowledge right so we, we have to be very very careful and we we spend a lot of time validating things and you know testing things and uh yeah it's 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 uh sometimes very um yeah tired so like you know tiring like yeah it's like uh, very sometimes a very detailed very technical work that you have to do day by day yeah i mean i know that you know it's it's not an uncommon feeling that you can sometimes feel like you're you're banging your head against the wall but a lot of times that's what research is you are taking on one of the hardest problems we've ever faced in all of science. We're trying to understand what is making up the universe and how does it affect the universe. Um, and it's something we can't directly observe. So we can make all of these indirect observations of it. We can see what its gravitational effects are and what its effects on the universe are. But until we can interact with it directly this is like this is like playing a game of darts blindfolded right you you have these constraints on you that make the game enormously difficult and so you're you're trying to do your best um but you're limited in what you can do what you can see and what you can learn because the uncertainties are so large in some areas and yet the constraints are so tight in some other areas that I feel that, you know, understanding what dark matter is, is maybe the greatest scientific challenge we have this century that I think we actually have a legitimate chance of solving this century. But it's going to take a lot of enthusiastic people who remain undaunted in the face of not only adversity, but also in the face of, you know, day to day, this is a lot of hard work. You you better love it. You better love the day to day of what you're doing because, um, because you know, it isn't enough to say, I'm going to feel so good when I cross the finish line. You you have to love every step of this marathon journey. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's totally true. Yeah. So let me ask you, um, now that we've sort of uh, covered many of the known aspects, um, if there were one thing you could know about the universe that we don't yet know, what would it be? And how can you imagine that we would find it out? Yeah, I mean, if we, you know, forget about all the details at small scales and all the structure and everything, which is you know very pretty, but if we go again into more of the, you know, overall picture, I, I would really like to know, um, you know, why 
first of all, why the Big Bang itself, you know, happened, right? Like, this is a question I always get asked when I say I'm a cosmologist and people are like, oh, but what was there before? And, uh, you know, all these things. Uh, how did it just create itself out of nowhere? Um, and and we have this, this very strange thing, right? Like, we have the Big Bang, then the inflation, which was a period of accelerated expansion. And then we had, okay, you know, matter domination. And then now we have, again, a period of accelerated expansion. So I would really like to know if these things are connected. For example, if, if the inflation era of the early universe is connected to, to our accelerated expansion era. And I would like to know if, if the universe is going to rip apart or if it's going to close back again into a cycle. Or, or maybe this is just like, you know... Uh, the end cycle of a you know cyclic universe or you know if there are many maybe many many universes you know this multiverse thing is now very famous right it's everywhere in the movies um so uh and if that maybe explains the cosmological constant problem so i think um yeah i think there is fundamentally apart from everything we've said fundamentally a problem of you know, quantum gravity problem that people, you know, talk about. But, like, it's more fundamental in the sense that we have hit the limits in a certain way of, of the theory, right? Like, the limit of GR is the Big Bang, right? Like, per definition of the Friedman, you know, equations, uh, there is no time, there is nothing, there is no space before uh, the Big Bang, right? This A equals zero, right? Like, the scale factor of the universe. So I, I would really like to know what happened there in, in terms of quantum mechanics, in terms of quantum field theory, and if that is actually connected to 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 something, uh, you know, right now. So I, you know, I would like expect or hope that there's like a unifying theory, as many, many scientists have said uh, during their lifetimes. And I, I would really like to have this unifying theory where you say, okay, everything makes sense, you know, everything is like one single thing. Um, and how do we, how should, you know, how are we going to get access to this? I think we don't know. I think we, we, as humans, we just come up with new experiments, new techniques that we never thought about, right? So yes, we're going to have gravitational waves and neutrinos and, and this and that. Um, but you know, maybe we will find out some, something in some accelerator experiment in the future or something else like just by looking at cosmic rays whatever you know like there is like so many options so i i think uh we still don't know i don't think any of the things right now is giving us a, a very good hint but i would really like to know about this unifying theory of of, of space-time let's say you know that's that's i think a really really big answer to a, a deep question that i ambushed you with because we we know you know what the universe is like from the very early stages of the Big Bang through the present day very well. But when we extrapolate our equations backwards, right, we can say, okay, it looks like you can't extrapolate the Big Bang all the way back to arbitrarily hot, dense temperatures, energies, you know, you're not going to run into a singularity at the start of the hot Big Bang because 
we have some observational evidence that says, no, the universe never got hotter than this certain amount. Its fluctuations aren't larger than a certain amount. The types of fluctuations that exist aren't consistent with extrapolating all the way back. Instead, the universe gives us these other observables that are consistent with an inflationary period, a period of exponential expansion where the universe wasn't dominated by matter or radiation, but by energy that appeared to be inherent to the fabric of space itself, that that preceded and set up our hot big bang. And then if we extrapolate to the far future of the universe, where dark energy dominates and takes over and the matter density asymptotically drops to zero, um, then you start to see, oh, wow, well, it's at a different energy scale and a different expansion rate, but it's the same end state as it was initial state. And I think this is where the idea for quintessence and non-cosmological constant dark energy originally came from is noting the similarity between the initial state that we think happened before the Big Bang to the final state that will happen some, you know, 10 to the 100 plus years from now. Um, boy, there's an interesting similarity there. And what happens when you say, okay, we have this problem that general relativity and quantum field theory don't play nice together, um, is there some connection between the beginning of the universe, the end of the universe, and some type of unified theory that marries general relativity and quantum field theory together? Um, this is a really big speculation. Um, I don't know that we'll ever be able to solve it, but we should at least be able to place very meaningful constraints on it and improve our understanding of it the better and better we measure dark energy across cosmic time. And that's also one of the main science goals of Euclid and the Nancy Roman Telescope and other large-scale structure surveyors that are excellent at doing things like weak lensing and cosmic shear and supernovae and i think we're we're going to either discover something remarkable or discover well if the answer to our big questions lies in this area it's beneath the limits of what we can observe and either way i want to find out i want to ask the universe what are you like and listen to the answers it tells us yeah indeed we are basically studying ourselves also in this process, right? I mean, this is the cosmic story of how we came to be. Um, so, you know, it's not fair to say, um, it's not fair to say we're studying the universe from outside of it because we are the universe itself as well. Indeed, indeed, yeah. So let me ask you, uh, if it's all right to ask you, um, you were born in Colombia, you grew up in Costa Rica, you got your PhD at the University of Heidelberg, you were a postdoc in Paris, um, and now you are a postdoc uh, in Aachen. And, you know, there are some people who I think don't necessarily have an appreciation for how um how international of an endeavor science actually is 
who don't realize um, the importance of there not being state or national boundaries to science. And, you know, when you were telling me earlier about where you were from and where you've lived and what your science career has been, I thought you might have a message for some of our listeners who maybe haven't experienced for themselves um, what life as an, I would guess, as a scientific nomad is like, that you go where the jobs are. Yeah, well, so I guess this this question is also very broad. So, yeah, I mean, the, the first of all, the, the international part of, of research, I think, is, is very important. Um, I think uh, if, if you only would have researchers from one single country, let's say just U.S. Americans in the U.S. doing cosmology, I think at some point they will all have the same ideas, right? They will all have the same, you know, ways of thinking. So I think it's, it's very important to have people from outside coming, going, moving around because, you know, you spread the ideas. And as we said, like... Uh, more than half an hour ago, it was like, you know, you have to be always challenging the other person, right? Like, so I think it's it's very cool um, to have all different cultures working in, in an experiment. Um, people have different working cultures, um, different ideas, different backgrounds. And that also gives, apart from science now, like really um, is one of the main one of the main reasons actually why some people actually stay in academia because um, academia is, is tough, it's hard, you know, uh, the, the job market is, is, is complicated, getting a permanent position is very difficult nowadays. And, and you know, compared to being just in a single, you know, in your, in your hometown all your life and working for the same company as your parents or whatever, um, this gives you like a really nice, um, overview of, of, of you know humans in, in general and you get to know really people from everywhere i've had colleagues from kazakhstan or uh you know thailand and yeah so i think uh, it's it's very it's very nice you also get to travel a lot uh, to conferences i will go to brazil in a few weeks for cosmo 2022 um and yeah i think that's that's really um you know what gives like a lot of you know, interesting aspects to this to this job, and the, and the fact of moving around, yeah, well, it's it's uh, difficult. At some point, it starts getting, I guess, more and more difficult because you know you have a partner, you maybe want to just settle down or have kids or whatever, uh, and then or maybe you make a lot of friends in a single place. Um, in my case, for example, in Paris, I really had a very nice community. Um, and it's a very, you know, it's a wonderful city, but I had to just go because I, I knew I wanted to continue and I had to find, uh, you know, continue with my research. And I found a really good place in Aachen. It's an amazing group. Um, but, you know, at some point you just want to maybe uh, settle down. And then that, that's ma that makes it hard uh, because I still don't know where I'm going to end up, right? So, and that's, that's a bit of a complicated uh, and... Uh, and um, hard and maybe you know sometimes frustrating part of of, of, uh, of being a scientist 
Yeah, I mean, thank you for sharing that candid look into the life of a scientist. Um, I have so much respect for what you've done and for what you're doing, and I hope you, uh, I hope you continue in the field because I think the field really benefits from having you in it, and also from having people like you in it. I, I think it's remarkable that you can, you know have been born and raised in South and Central America, that you can have uh, gotten your PhD and done postdocs in Europe, that you can be working with equipment in the Southern Hemisphere, in Africa and Australia. And for all of that, you've never even been to, like you've never even lived or worked in the United States. And that's where I and most of my listeners are. And we have uh, sort of this America-centric view and this America-Eurocentric view of of science in the world. And I think that, uh, you know, just seeing how diverse not only the world is, but the scientific world is, um, is a super valuable perspective to get. Um, that the more people we get with different backgrounds, with different skills, with different toolkits, the more successful we will be collectively as a species in our scientific endeavors as well. The, the more people we have bringing their unique skills and talents and educations and experiences to the table, the better off we're all going to be. Um, Santiago, I wanted to thank you for a wonderful and far-reaching conversation, and I wanted to give you the opportunity before we say goodbye to share any final messages you might have with all of our listeners out there. Well, thank you, Ethan, first of all, for the invitation. I, I think it's really a, an honor to be here. Yeah, I think, well, maybe most of your listeners are people who are very interested in, in, in cosmology, astrophysics um astronomy in general and um and i always get questions you know when i for example i was at the airport here um i i did a, a small stop in mexico and, and and the you know officer there asked me what i was doing and the questions and then he started asking me oh you know about the big bang and about these things and you know it's just like a you know uh airport official uh, um, actually you know being super interested and I think um, thanks to people like you uh, we, who are like constantly you know doing outreach and podcasts and writing articles I think there's a lot of people appreciating um, what we do and I just uh, want to thank the listeners for like, you know always being curious and always being interested in what we do as scientists and and I think outreach is super important and you know hopefully some of you uh, who are listening also end up being scientists uh, one day right what a wonderful message you know there are there are so many of us out there who are curious about this universe and all that it entails um from where we come from to how we got to be here to what we're made up of to what our ultimate fate is and um you know this is not just questions these are not just questions that fall into the realm for people like Santiago and I who have PhDs in theoretical astrophysics or something like that this is this is something that should be accessible to everyone the lessons that we learn should be available and should benefit everyone who wants to know about it so 
Santiago, thank you. I'm honored that you've been on my podcast, and it's been my pleasure to continue to share stories of the universe with all of you listening out there. The Starts With a Bang podcast is only made possible through the generous donations of our Patreon supporters. Feel free to sign up and support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash startswithabang. And I'd like to give a shout out to all of our supporters donating at the $5 a month level and above. Thanks go to Chad Marler, Lainey Chuest, Rob Hansen, Samir Kumar, Tim Graham, Aaron Weiss, Chris Jakutas, Dominic Turpin, John Methot, John Van Balagunian, Matt Conroe, Pattern Shift, Pete Smoyer, Pierre Franson, Punitive Expedition, Sea Green Mango, Stefan Berneger, William Blair, Amira Sosnick, Andy and Wall, Benish Tech, LLC, Brian Terry, Danny, David Charney, Denier, Flo, Frank, George Church, Jerry Wilterding, John Kozura, Joseph Dvorak, Jose Enrique, Kilia Opu, Marcelo Barnabas, Mark Armstrong, Matt Glasser, Patrick Dennis, Pedro Texera, Rafael Wojcik, Randall Slimak, Rick Baker, Sean Foley, Steve Guderian, The Human, Adam Robinson, Adrian Griffiths, Alan Parikh, Andres Chovanec, Arnulfo Zepeda, Benhead, Bob Shire, Brainwise, Brett Minder, Carl Iddings, Casey Haskins, Dan Steelen, Dana Bridges, David Hibbets, David Taschioni, David Wolf, Dick Pills, Dwayne Williams, Fraser Kane, Gabriel Nader, Glenn McDavid, Hellbender, James Bryson Hyatt, James Nance, Jason Luttrell, Jason McCampbell, Javier Zazo, Jeff Renike, Kelly Kudrick, Lockwood Carlson, Mark Bloor, Mark Langston, Michael Hall, Naked Bunny with a Whip, Nathan Hannon, Neil Flood, Paul Lester, Paulina Barron, Pavel Zuzelski, Philip Francis, Radek Nesbida, Rich Weigel, Richard Schwartz, Rushin Shah, Sam Terzakian, Steve Shaber, Stuart Lending, Tina Tallon, Tom Van Scotter, Tomas All, Tomas Walgren, Tommy White, Weller Tractor Salvage, William Van in Huvel and Young Co. S. Thanks to all of you out there for tuning in, and we'll see you back here next time for more Starts With a Bang. <laughs> <laughs>